0: Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. Um, in the realm of not smart moves... I pulled one off this morning by doing a uh, software update before the service. And so my iPad is in the office, probably about 68% updated. So we'll be on, uh, on here this morning. Uh, we're going to continue on in our sermon series through 1 John. Uh, I want to read... For you, if you want to turn in your Bibles, First John is near the end. First John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is a fairly well-known passage. Uh, kids, all right. Uh, elevate kids, and just elevate, EGC, just elevate. Elevate kids, uh, kindergarten through second grade. You can follow Mr. Jeremy out that way. Or just pass by Mr. Jeremy on your way to class. He'll point you where you're going. All right. Disruptive adults, you may have to see Mr. Jeremy uh, afterwards. All right, First John chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. You have, if, if you have been in church long, you have probably heard some of these uh, verses before and certainly these concepts. Let me read. This is John writing to the church in Ephesus. And this is what he writes. This is the message we have heard from him, talking about Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Um, So... I looked all week, there's a, there's a joke about self-awareness and a therapist going to a party and I could not find it. Um, and I searched on Google and about three hours later uh, after a multitude of jokes. So I have to tell a psychologist joke this morning because there's too many of them. And I was like, ah, all right. So this really, I don't know if it has anything to do with a sermon or not. Uh, uh, a horse walks into a bar and orders a pint and the bartender says to the horse, you know, uh, you're here an awful lot. You you drink an awful lot. Do you think you might be an alcoholic? And the horse says, I don't think I am. And poof, he vanishes from existence. (laughs) All right, now, this is a joke about Rene Descartes' famous statement, I think, therefore I am. And you might be saying, well, why didn't you tell us that at the beginning? The joke would have made more sense. And I could have, but of course that would be putting Descartes before the horse <laughs> All right Google has destroyed us All right This this section of First John is very well known um, again, most of you, if you've grown up in church, you've been around church. You've you've heard something about this uh, at some point in time. The idea of God is light. If we walk in the light, you know, we can't have darkness. If we walk in the light, First uh, John one nine. Uh, you at some point, if you grew up in the church, was pro- we were probably challenged to memorize that verse for good reason, right? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins, uh, and it's a great passage uh, that has been probably preached and taught quite a bit, and um, The problem sometimes with things being very well known is that they run the risk of being either presumed or misunderstood or maybe not as examined as maybe they should be. And uh, I think this might be an issue with this. So we're going to spend two weeks uh, in this passage. Uh, This week we're going to start with more uh, of our own stuff and more of like a I don't know, like a meta approach to it. And then next week, we're going to get into the character of God as it's revealed in this passage. Uh, we'll press and how we, are, how we can press into that more next week. So over the next couple of weeks, as, as John brings to light here, we're going to be talking about confession and repentance, confession of sin, repentance, and forgiveness. Uh, and this is critical, but I want, to, um, I want to expand this just a little bit. Confession and uh, repentance and faith are uh, critical, but we also have to understand how that flows into every part of the Christian life, which if we're a follower of Jesus, we should just call life. It flows into and it branches out into every part of life. The gospel is not just how to get saved. The gospel is not just how to go to heaven when you die. That that is very truncated. That's a very small part of it. It is also how to be. It's how to live. It's what we do, what we value. It's how the world should be. And it's about a great kingdom that has been established and is being established and being more and more revealed uh, as we go. Um, And how one day this kingdom will be fully present on earth as it is in heaven. And so... I say this because sometimes when we deal with the concepts of sin and forgiveness, uh, and, and maybe this is just me, um, and I'm, I'm willing to own that, but sometimes I feel like when, when we do that, there are, there are different veins in the Christian realm where we either only talk about sin and forgiveness, and that's it, and that's, and that's the extent of all we talk about, or we have a tendency to just kind of move past that and talk about everything else but sin and forgiveness. And I, and I think both of those are mistakes, right? As Tim Keller would say, that the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has accomplished, is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A through Z. So, all right, got to figure out how to work this. All right, so in this passage, John has a lot of repetitive phrases. Uh, and that's something, when you're reading scripture, that's a question you can ask. Are there words? Parrot words is what... Uh, what Zach Eswine would call them, words that are repeated quite often. And what John does is he starts this passage off by bringing up what he was talking about in the first several verses, uh, this word of life. He has encountered this word of life, which ultimately what we can say, ultimately he is talking about Jesus, and he has encountered this word of life uh, it's been, been, been made known to him uh, and to the disciples, and it is life in itself. It is the meaning of life for the Greeks. Logos, word, means logic. It is the thing that holds all things together. And that John and the disciples have heard from him, and now he is proclaiming to specifically to this church in Ephesus. He is bearing witness of that which he has encountered. And also simultaneously to us as the church, he is reminding us of this what he has encountered and then we also become witnesses and proclaim on alright and what this proclamation is going to involve this morning is a deep awareness it's going to involve a proper awareness of God and a proper self-awareness now I've I've, I've heard this thought before and I and I understand it when we talk about the idea of self-awareness uh, this idea, like, we don't need psychobabble, we don't need psychology stuff, uh, we, we just need Jesus. Um, we, don't need, we don't need navel-gazing. Uh, and listen, I understand uh, where that comes from, but what I would suggest is that we learn also to develop the, an understanding between the difference of navel-gazing and self-examination. Navel-gazing and self-awareness. And I think that's important because John in this chapter is going to hit pretty big on this idea of self-awareness. That we need to be aware. Uh, And he invites us to that. And and in a very real way, it's going to be extremely difficult and I would say almost impossible to understand one without the other. To, to fully understand what Christ has accomplished and to fully understand ourselves, it's going to be hard to do that just examining one of those things. And then if we start bringing other people into this and how to understand them and see them and, and encounter them, then it gets all kinds of complicated. And we have to have a deep awareness of who God is and what he's done and a deep awareness of ourselves. And I would suggest that it's incomplete uh, if we don't uh, get into both of those. And the reason I say that is because We are tempted by sin always uh, to kind of shortcut this process. Uh, What we really need is. And let me encourage you, I, from both conviction and experience, that we should not shortcut this process. For members of refuge, this is actually part of our values, right? We have the know, the be, and the do. And what we say by that all the time, a lot of us grew up with religion. God says this, so we do this. And it's just know and do. The reality is, what God has accomplished first, before it tells us what to do, it tells us who we now are. Redeemed, whole, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Resurrected. And so then we do out of who we now are. And it has to take self-examination. What is our identity? The good news of Jesus, what, has, what that has done first changes who we are, and then our actions and practices flow from a new identity. So this week we're going to look at this passage in light of ourselves. We're going to see it in light of God being light And then next week, we're going to see what the character of God, what that looks like, and how we can press into that. Uh, And you you may say, well, you got that backwards. Okay, maybe, but come next week, too, then. Don't blame me, and then don't come back. Come next week, too, and and we'll make it two-part, and we'll just call it even. Um, So what we start off with here, John's first declaration of who God is. He has two declarations of who God is in this book, in this letter. One, God is light, and then God is love. Here he makes his first declaration. God is light, in him is no darkness. And then John's going to give us some questions for self-examination, in light of God being light. And all of these questions he's going to propose to us start with these two words, if we. If we. So here's what he does. He says, God is light, and in him is no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with God, we talked about this last week, this idea of commonality, community, communion, that's the heartbeat of what fellowship means, relationship. If we say that we have fellowship with the God of the universe and yet walk in darkness, then we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then not only do we have fellowship, commonality, communion with God, but we also have fellowship and community and commonality with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and we're going to look at that big juicy word next week, what does it mean for God to be just in this, in this area right here? Uh, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. and We don't want to make God out to be a liar. Right? Nobody amen that. Trust me on this one. All right. Um, A couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, N.T. Wright and his, uh, when he would, people would say, I don't believe in God, and and he would say, Well, which God do you not believe in? Right? Um, And and this is a God that I I don't believe in either. Uh, I would join N.T. Wright in this. I I would be an atheist for this God, the God that sends bad people uh, to hell and takes good people to heaven, a kind of our default view. And I wonder if, I wonder if we can't help, if we've become too familiar with this passage. I wonder if we can't help but read our default view of God into what is taking place in this passage. And we default interpret what it means to walk in the light as he is in the light. Good people walk in the light and bad people walk in the darkness. Maybe, maybe if, we, if we're not careful to confront this passage and what the depths behind it, Maybe our default view is is at work here, um, and so uh, and so then our interpretation of this passage would be that sinners walk in the darkness, and good people, those who don't sin, walk in the light. But then we're gonna we're gonna run into a problem, right? Do you see it coming up in the text here? What we read. If if sinners walk in the darkness and those of us who don't sin walk in the light, if that's our default view, we're going to hit a problem here in the text. Okay. Hopefully you're with me. God says that if we say we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves, we call him a liar. So maybe that's not, maybe we need to challenge our default view. So first, what does sin mean? A very simple definition of sin. Sin is disobedience to God's law. What is God's law then, you may ask? Good question. Uh, Jesus sums up all of the law and the prophets. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. When we love something else more than God, that is sin. Guilty. So I think there's a few different ways that we may claim to, to not have sin that might be good for us to talk about. And I think we're going to see these, and they're going to break up into, if you want to see this in the way they break up culturally, you can. One tends to be more progressive. One tends to be more conservative. Uh, both at the root of both of them really are ways that we don't need Jesus and can operate without him. Uh, the first way um, is, or one way that we may say we don't have sin is we just minimize sin in general. We just explain it away. Ah! God's not, that's, with all the ills in the world and what's wrong, uh, with all of the social wrong, surely God's not concerned with, in that kind of petty for God to be worried about my behavior and my, de- the details of my life and some of the things that I want to do with all, everything else that's going on? Uh, we may tend to uh, justify and excuse our judgmentalism because other people's judgmentalism is far worse than ours. Uh, and we can, again, we can, we can operate in the things of, of uh, isn't, isn't what's more important love, uh, which, which we kind of have blinders on on what that means. Um, and sometimes we use sayings, and I'm not talking about non-believers here. Certainly non-believers have, have other issues here. I'm talking about before Jesus. uh, And we sometimes use things that, uh, in the name of Jesus, to talk about us being our authentic and true selves. And that is really what God is all about, is for us to be our authentic self. That's what's most important. And at some point along the line, we have to confess, I mean, and this is where I wish I'd remember that joke because it plays in well here. We have to confess that we really have no idea who, who we really are and what our authentic self really is. We are tossed to and fro. And when somebody calls themselves objective, they have helped us out by letting, them, letting us know that they have little self-awareness. We don't know who we really are. And if we wanna be our real authentic self, the, the self that we were actually created to be, that involves submission and following after Jesus, and Jesus calls us to actually follow him, which means, it means denying ourselves. It means actually becoming fully human, who we were created to be. And another issue with this, if we're honest, we're gonna find, uh, we're gonna find ourselves to be hypocritical in thinking that our sin doesn't affect the great poverty of the world, but everybody else's does. And we may find ourselves in a bit of hypocrisy there. We have a tendency sometimes in this realm to elevate the view that my personal desires and my personal wants are what are the most important. And we have to be careful that we don't minimize God's holiness to make ourselves more comfortable or feel better. And that is actually the antithesis of what John is bringing, apart, bringing across uh, in this verse. Uh, let me give you a helpful way to think about this. The, the, the concept of self-care. All right, everybody's heard the concept of self-care. Half of you are like, yes, bring it. The other half of you are like, oh my gosh. All right, let me tell you, I think that self-care is actually very important. I think it is biblical. I think Jesus models this for us. Rest, that's part of the DNA of what God created into the universe. A time of rest, a time to sleep, uh, health, a time to be alone, setting certain boundaries and various decisions and, and relationships of what we can handle and what we can't handle. Uh, self-care is when we ask, what are the things that I need or need to do to actually be healthy? And, and that means healthy before Jesus. But... For you eye-rolling types, you better believe that this can be manipulated and taken advantage of, absolutely, like everything else. Self-care is not self-indulgence. It is not self-indulgence. That's not what it means. Self-care addresses our hurriedness, our anxiety, our fears, our wounds, our stresses, by clearing away time and space so that we can deal with these things before God. And before, hopefully, and prayerfully trusted community. Self-indulgence, now hear me, okay, real quick. Real quick clarification. Self-care can happen with like s- sweets and, you know, ice cream and, 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 you know, hot wings and beer and that, like self-care can take place within those. Self-indulgence as a practice, I want, I, I need to be careful to make, for my allowances here. Um, self-indulgence um, as a practice is really more about self-worship, where we lay the sacrifices down before the altar of me, And then kind of baptize it and clothe it with, this is what God wants. And when we do that, we minimize the sins that we don't want to give up. But are actually the ones that are destroying us. There's an illustration of this um, about a small village. And and a lot of the members of the village were getting sick. And so scientists heard what was going on and scientists come down and, and they're trying to investigate why the members of the village, is, village are getting sick. And what they find out is that there is pollution coming from a factory up, upstream. There's a river that runs right through the village and there's pollution coming into the river and, and this pollution is what is causing the members of this village to get sick. And so they talk to the chief of the village and they say, listen, you can't you can't get into the river anymore. You can't drink the water anymore. That's the pollution is coming upstream and, that's, and the chief just couldn't believe it. This river was life. It was their only source of drinking water. It was their source of cleaning and bathing and all of that stuff. And to give up the river was, was ridiculous. There's no way they could do it. And so the scientists, they, they took a drop of the water and they showed the chief the bacteria and they had him look in to the microscope and they said, look, in the microscope, you can see the bacteria moving around. That's the problem. And then, supposedly, the chief takes the microscope and smashes it and says, problem solved. Pretending that sin doesn't exist does not fix the problem. It, it just doesn't. We can't blame and pretend and minimize. It might be okay for a while, but it will eventually destroy us. It will harden our hearts. It will make God out to be a liar. It will destroy fellowship with God and with one another and it's very root, it will deny our need for a savior. That's one way that we might say we don't have sin. Another way is a lot more religious way. We acknowledge our sins to get into Christianity, right? I did that, ABCs, but now, now it's time to focus on all those other sinners out there, right, we amen the preacher when he steps on our toes a little bit, acknowledging that he's probably talking to somebody else And that person should really be here to hear this, especially spouse, you know, or friend that you're elbowing while the preacher's talking. Um, But our sins become a little bit more minor, more easily justified uh, because of how bad those people's sins really are. And there's a tendency to kind of break the world down into good people versus bad people or uh, the way rabbinic tradition did it in the early Testament uh, in the early in Jesus' day was sinner and righteous. And the good people fit the mold of being the good people. Our sins are much more socially acceptable. They're much more forgivable. And this view also harbors a great deal of comparisonitis, where our sins are not as bad as those others. And the way this worked in rabbinic tradition, for a sinner to become righteous means you had to assimilate. You had to become more like the good people the good and moral people. And then mission can actually become more of a self-righteous mission for the good people. Followers of Jesus, this becomes less and less about people actually needing the grace and mercy and forgiveness and amazing love of Jesus. And what they really need to do is become more like us. And, And certainly this is not unique to Christianity, Uh, Actually, Christianity might be the only one that that actively works against that idea. But it is religious, it's philosophical, it is uh, political, it's national, it's ethnic, and it has influenced nearly every social movement in the history of time. And to certain points, even reached levels of violence. Because what happens for the good people is good people must either convert or assimilate the bad people or just find a way to eliminate them altogether. And the biggest problem is for the good people is that they are convinced in doing this that they are doing good. And there's no motivation for something like this, like religious motivation. Being convinced that we are doing good. And when this gets gets radicalized, it results in some of the most horrific crimes in human history. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote the book. I'm going to try to say that one more time, and we'll see if I can get away with it. He wrote the book, The Gulag Archipelago, in which he talks about uh, the um, the Russian prison camps in, uh, in the mid-20th century uh, Soviet Union. And it's where political prisoners and other criminals thought to be a threat were simply taken from their homes by the KGB. Uh, they were taken from their workplaces. Some of them they would even... Uh, they would even say that you've won a trip. And when they would show up, they'd get on a train and never be heard from again. And they were taken to these prison camps, these work camps, these labor camps. And Solzhenitsyn begins to write about this and he's the one that kind of broke the story on it and got out of what was, what was taking place. Uh, he was raised in the Russian Orthodox Church, but by this time, by, being, by, by the time he was a young adult, he had become a, a fairly ardent uh, Marxist. Uh, but because of his suffering and the reflection of all this stuff in the labor camps, Uh, he would eventually embrace Eastern Orthodoxy Orthodoxy, where he would become a devout follower of Jesus. In the late 50s, he was finishing his third volume of this work and uh, looking back over with his neighborhood, with the place that he was raised and all the stuff that he encountered, he just as easily could have been a prison guard as a prisoner. And he sees that those aren't the bad guys. I could just as easily have been a bad guy. And he writes, among his conclusions, he writes this, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The world is not full of good people versus bad people. We are all both Jekyll and Hyde. So, coming back to John. Walking in the light can't mean saying we have no sin. It can't just mean being more moral. It's got to be something else. John addresses that. I think this is this can be both simple and profoundly difficult Um, because we have in in the Western world we tend to have linear views and we tend to have this idea of progress and healing and we should be. And maybe it's like this, but we we only think in linear. And I think that can be hard when we have these concepts of getting better or healing or uh, or experiencing victory. I don't know if you've ever heard a story like this. Maybe some of you have it, and, and I hope not because it will ruin my illustration. But where you, you see people that are, like, really kind of wrapped up in sin, and then they meet Jesus, and it's, like, golden from there on out. Has any, anybody ever heard those testimonies? I was really struggling. I was in the dumpster. I was high on crack, and then I met Jesus. And, man, now everything's great. And you're like, man maybe I need to get on crack in a dumpster. I I don't know, because that's not my story. I used to work at Edward Jones, and one of the things I learned when working at Edward Jones was everybody has a friend, right? Everybody had a friend at Edward Jones uh, who went into a small office, and then something happened, they turned it around, they made millions. Everybody had a friend, I mean, now everybody has a friend that's experienced the absolute worst of the other political party and all the medical and political things. Everybody has a friend that they use for a great example. I don't know if those stories are fully accurate. But sometimes in the Christian world, we hear this, everybody's got a friend that he was an alcoholic and then he experienced Jesus and he never had another sip of drink, never had another temptation again the rest of his life. The problem with those stories for the struggler for the, one, for the one who struggles every day, is that those can be crushing. What's wrong with me? Why hasn't that happened to me? What did I miss? So let me give you a picture. And maybe, just maybe, some of you might resonate with this. Maybe all of you, I don't want to be presumptive. but I bet some of you will. You determine there is something in your life whether it's a thought, a fear, a pattern, a habit, a behavior, something that you don't want that's destroying you, some sin that's at work in you, and it's dark and it's secret, and you feel so ashamed of it, and you decide to be brave. And you're going to risk being embarrassed and shamed, and you're going to confess this to a trusted source. Right? <laughs> like, this is not, not like I'm going to walk in and confess this before church on Thanksgiving share Sunday, all right? That's not what I mean. You're going to confess it to a trusted source, somebody that can handle it, someone who knows you, or a therapist, or a pastor, or a friend, or Jesus himself. And when you confess it, let's just say, best case scenario, uh, that it is received with care and compassion. Thank you for telling me this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're struggling with that. That sounds terrible. And I don't want you to live under that. And I want you to know that I love you. And I'm here to, I want to help. How can I help? Now, there are certainly worse ways to respond. Um, and so I wanted to start with best case scenario. There, there are v- way worse responses. Um, things like, I can't believe that. You should stop that. That's helpful. Um, uh, you can't be a Christian and do that, or think that, or, um, or, or maybe just like the audible gasp. <gasps> um, those are really great ways to make sure that nobody will ever confess to you anything ever again. And listen, I've done that. All right. So this is also I'm trying to give us all some help here. So let's just say. Uh, we, we, have, we are met with this beautiful... That, that is never, by the way, how Jesus responds to our confession. So let's say it, it is met with grace and compassion. Now, I also want to give a very, a very specific clarification here. Um, all sin involves other people. All sin will involve forgiveness and spiritual reconciliation, restoration as part of a process of repentance, especially if those sins uh, are really directly involving other people. Uh, and repentance, the process of repentance is one that desires to do what is right. I want to say that, but I also have to offer the clarification here that there are also matters of potential legal consequence. And yes, forgiveness in Christ, uh, forgiveness is, is there for even the most heinous of sins. But repentance does not subvert nor forego justice. In fact, repentance invites justice. So I want to make sure, just to be clear at the outset, if there is a sin that you are thinking of that may have legal consequences that we are aware. I'm, not, I'm saying confess it. But legal consequences, there is always forgiveness in Christ, but repentance desires justice. Even, that means, even if that means justice against w- what we have done. All right. There's a great warning and message there from Delmar and oh brother where art thou that preacher says all my sins were was washed away including that piggly wiggly I knocked over in Yazoo and the preacher said that sin's been washed away too neither God nor man's got nothing on me right you remember the response to that well Delmar that baptism may have set you straight with the Lord but the state of Mississippi is a little more hard nosed all right so let's say you experience best case scenario, you are met in your worst confession, you are seen, known, not rejected, not turned away, but loved and accepted. How does that feel? It's a sense of relief. Right? Sit in that for a minute. But okay, let's keep going since you asked. You wake up the next morning, and you feel confessor's remorse. What have I done? They're going to look at me different now. Is this what they're going to think about me every time? What happens next time I see them? They're going to bring this up. They're never going to trust me again. Why did I do that? But still, you've confessed, and so there's a little bit of relief. There's a little bit of, it's out there. You've gotten it off your chest. You feel a measure of freedom and confidence, and you're walking in the newness of life, and that experience was so painful, you're like, you know what, I'm never going to have to go through that again. I'm committed now to stop doing whatever it was I was doing. And then a few days go by, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months, but then there's another stressful season, a moment of panic or weakness. You let your guard down, the sin that you thought you had done away with, that temptation, that pattern, that habit begins to sneak back in. The darkness begins to creep back in. Let's just say you, cover, you, you mess up one more time and you cover that over and you're like, you know what, okay, that, that was a moment in time. You tell yourself, and that's not me anymore. I really don't want to fall back into that. I'm not going to tell that person again because we've already covered that. We already talked about it and I experienced forgiveness and victory and I'm supposed to be good now. So I'm going to let this one slide. I'm going to double down my efforts. Never again. This time it's victory. Victory. And then it happens again, and then maybe a third time. And, and now you determine, well, I can't confess it now. It's too much. You've experienced forgiveness once, and it didn't seem to take. What do I do? I'm going to deal with this on my own. I'm going to keep it hidden. I'm going to confess smaller stuff. I'm going to, maybe I'll get more outraged at people that are doing the same thing that I'm actually outraged at myself at, and I'm just going to keep pressing on. And this begins to grow in the darkness where it thrives because what you've been told or what you've been taught or what you think in that default mode is if you had really repented, this wouldn't be happening right now. So just real quick, am I alone here? Okay, good, good. This is toxic shame. It is a very powerful enemy It keeps your confession and your sin and your joy in the darkness where shame thrives. And it fills your mind with all of the ways you have failed. And you are just not worthy of love. Because if you were really loved, blame everybody else, or you actually received this love, keep it all on yourself, probably a combination of both, then you wouldn't be in this position. If you want to know how incredibly powerful shame is, shame will invite you and taunt you to say, make commitments against me. Make commitments that you're never going to feel shame again. I dare you. We'll see how that goes. And then the minute you feel shame again, you got the Leo DiCaprio meme with, from Django with his cup of brandy laughing at you over in the corner. Shame is brilliant, and it's not an enemy that you and I can defeat. You can find alternatives to dealing with shame. You can self-medicate. You can have distraction or addiction that got us there in the first place, self-indulgence or self-righteousness. Take your pick on how you want to minimize sin. You can get outraged at other people and their sins. You can blame everyone else for being as judgmental as you feel, Uh, or you can leave the faith altogether. Smash the microscope and pretend the problem doesn't exist. Or, or, you can confess again. You can bring it into the light again and again and again and again and again. again. And maybe five more times is what you need for the love of Jesus to really kind of sink in and say, okay, I don't have to do this anymore. Or maybe it's 10 more times that you need to experience the grace and forgiveness of Jesus anew and have that make more and more sense in your soul. Or maybe it's 70 times seven But every time that sin happens and you see it and you don't let it sit there and you don't let it dwell there in the darkness and you confess it to someone who models the love of Jesus and tells you over and over again, you are loved and I'm here to help. And you bring that sin and the shame into the light where it can be dealt with, where you can hear truth, where you can get exposed, where it gets exposed and slowly but certainly uh, begins to lose power and sway over you. There is actual biological evidence that you can retrain your brain or what scripture would call a life of repentance, that when stress or anxiety or hurt or wounds or, or, or uh, shame hits you, that you no longer have to go to that coping mechanism that has piled up and buried you deeper and deeper in shame, that you can actually retrain your brain to go down a different path, that you forge a new way through the woods, You can forge a new path toward trusted community, toward Jesus. And to hear these words, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And eventually, when we experience stress and anxiety, and it takes time, but we begin to practice this, we can actually run out, uh, away from the darkness and toward the light. I think this is what it means to walk in the light we're going long almost done I promise Uh, integrity anybody ever heard the word integrity Uh, I always heard the word integrity as this is what you do at the stoplight at two o'clock in the morning when nobody else is looking anybody else hear that all right man-made laws anyway um, don't say teenagers you stop at that stoplight don't tell the officer that your pastor said anything. All right. Um, uh, Jay Stringer in his book *On Unwanted says this. Failure of, un- of integrity doesn't begin when you do that sin one more time. It begins the moment we begin to care less about things that actually matter. Shame and sin, listen to me, all right? I'm going to wake back up just for a minute. Shame and sin work their magic when they convince us to stop caring. When they convince you that you are beyond hope, that you are just too messed up, that you will never get it, that everyone else is so much better and they all have it together and you might as well just give in. And when we give in, that looks a lot like self-justification. Well, I guess I just have to have this. Or it looks like comparisonitis, or it looks like blame, or secret lives, or darkness, or self-righteous judgment, and it it leads to darkness. This is the hook that brings us back. It's the path of least resistance that wreaks havoc on our souls. But there is freedom. In confession. This is what Jesus promises to bring confession again. Could Jesus really still love me? I messed up again. And the answer is a profound yes, and he already knew that. If we say we have no sin, we don't need Jesus. If we practice self justification, we forfeit our great defender. The goal of the Christian life is never to need Jesus less. All right, this week, we're going to do two weeks on this, but we're going to work on building our testimony. So here's the the practice for this week. This week, we're going to take a look at ourselves. What do you believe about yourself? Um, And and the questions that surround that. Do you believe that you're an image bearer of God? Do you believe that you are loved? Do Do you believe that you are made and designed to be loved before sin even entered the world? that you were made good by God to be loved. Shame tells us a different story. Shame gives us a different view of ourselves. So this week, here's a practice I want to give you. And and you may look at this and say, you know what? Shame is not a big thing for me. I don't wrestle with it. And man, I want to celebrate with you. That is awesome. And I also want to tell you, if that's you, I want to encourage you to be a compassionate friend and listener to a lot of other people who do wrestle consistently with shame. All right, to be compassionate here. Be an encourager. Um, Kurt Thompson calls this his shame inventory. Uh, take a three-by-five note card, or it doesn't matter. Take a piece of paper or whatever. And I want you to mark down during the day when you feel shame. When you feel the shoulds coming on. I should be better at this. I should be better at this. I should be more like this. I can't believe I, I'm so whatever. And when you feel that, I don't want you to analyze it. I don't want you to look at, you know, why is this coming on right now? Because, man, shame has a heyday in that. Its goal is to work in the darkness and not even be noticed. It does not want to be famous. It wants to destroy you. This is the work of our enemy. And so all I want you to do is when you feel shame, put a little mark down. And then at the end of the day, I want you to see just how loud that voice is. And then, at the end of the day, when you can be reminded, or first thing in the morning, which is so much better for me. I believe Jesus a lot more first thing in the morning than I do at night. Um, First thing in the morning, to be able to speak truth, to hear truth. I am not my shame. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. I have been made new. I have been loved by Jesus. And then that day, again, see how loud that voice is. Don't analyze it don't make commitments. Don't say, well, I'm not going to feel shame. I'm just not going to. And then you feel shame. You're like, ah, oh, dang it, I felt shame. I really shouldn't have felt shame. Ah, oh, now I feel shameful. I made this commitment about not feeling shame. and I'm, Shame has a heyday. Just mark it down. Expose it. Bring it into the light. Allow that to work on you. And friends, that this is not your struggle. Man, be an encourager. Be a supporter. The story that shame tells is not what is true about us. That is the darkness. And Jesus has invited us to walk in the light, which means expose that. Allow Jesus to bring it to light without fear, without fear of being turned away or rejected, to know that this is my Redeemer who loves me, who has made and is making me new. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you've invited us to walk in the light. Light brings direction. Light brings conviction. Light brings exposure. And so it's not us pretending that we don't have sin. It's not us minimizing our sin. It's not not anything. It's experiencing grace and forgiveness and mercy anew over and over and over again. Help us not to hide from that. Help us to never need you less, but to be fully dependent on you. Thank you that we have, we have hope. I've never had to convince anybody. Well, that's not true. I've had, it's, it's, most people don't need convincing that there's something wrong with them. What we need convincing of is that we could still be loved. And Jesus, you have told us, you are the atonement, you have bore our shame. And invite us to trust you. I pray that we would do that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.